Okay, here we are. Our, our Sunday meeting. This is our time to meet and chit-chat a bit because it's Sunday and it's a nice weekend. And uh, we're going to be reading from the Ghost of Flight 401. I believe we're starting Chapter 5 now. Uh, but in the meantime, I have something to tell you. What are you doing on February 19th and 20th? Well, if you have no plans, I've got something that you might be interested in. The Mystical Minds Convention. I'm actually going to be a speaker there, along with some other great speakers like Nasir Mohammed Chowin, Zorian Fenton, Brad Olson, Michael Fury, Drake Fury, Tiffany Turner, Robin Korak, Bess Soilovan, and Shannon Del Florentino. The Mystical Minds uh, Convention is a convention for pagans, metaphysical, and paranormal folks. So if you can find it in your time you know, to want to attend, that would be great. And you can uh, visit their website at mysticalmindsconvention.com and come join me. Come meet me. You can come meet me and uh, we'll chit-chat. You can say you saw, me, you saw me on California Haunts Radio or you knew me from a previous investigation that my team did at your house. But uh, come on down and uh, visit. I'm going to be talking about ghost hunting. And these other speakers have really, really great topics that you're going to be interested, that you're going to find interesting. Again, that's the mysticalmindsconvention.com. Head on over there. Okay. So uh, we are on, like I said earlier, let me move this, chapter five. And uh, where we left off with these guys, because we're, we're going to give a few minutes for people to come in. Uh, where we left off was that they had gotten the people that had survived the, 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 the plane crash, that plane crash in the Everglades. You know, the, the people that survived the plane crash are now at the hospital. Some of them did, were, you know, didn't have hardly any injuries. Some had horrible injuries. But now they're trying to take out the what's left, which is the dead, you know, the rest of the dead, the bodies. Um, for the whole uh, tee up for people that haven't been on here. See who's here. Someone's here. Ah, cool. And for the uh, tee up on here, for people that haven't been on here, the Ghost of Flight 401 is the true story of a haunting that happened on a major airline, which was Eastern Airlines. And uh, the plane uh, had crashed in the Everglades, the Florida Everglades, it's back in the 70s. And they, I'm not going to tell you the, the plot, but let's just say that after the crash, there was paranormal activity. Okay, so that's what we're doing here. So we'll give a couple more minutes for folks to come in, and then we'll continue with Chapter 5 of the Ghost of Flight 401. And like I said, <clears throat> where we left off was the plane had crashed, and the rescue guys were out there, you know, checking everybody out. They got everybody out that had injuries, and now they're just at the point where they're taking the bodies out, and they're talking to uh, other flights that saw this thing go down or explode, you know, so, so they're getting their witness testimony and stuff. So I'm going to start right now, okay? And uh, please expect this to last. These are long chapters, so this could last between now and 7.30 is the way it's been going. Last week we ended at 7.15. So I'm going to go ahead and start, and here we go. Let me get this going. The rising of the sun on... The rising... <laughs> it's going to be one of those days. The rising on the, of the sun on Saturday morning had unveiled the full horror of the scene. Ripped in pulverized metal sprawled for a, thir for a third of a mile from where the left-hand wingtip slashed in the swamp. Only two small pieces of metal marked that point. Then three giant swaths followed 50 feet away, as if a three-bladed plow had gorged the soft mud and sawgrass, forming three canals. At the end of the canals were the first fragments of, of small engine parts and an oil cooler. Beyond that was an engine mount frame, part of the port engine fan case, and an oil sca scavenge filter. Two football fields away from the point of impact was a section of the left-hand wing 
and the port engine itself. And beyond that was the piece of wreckage that had that had demanded so much attention from the crew the night before. The nose landing gear strut of sibling. It was lying alone like a dismembered claw of an eagle. The more intact structures were far from the point of impact. 1,200 feet away was a large eggshell that once had been the midship cabin over the right-hand wing. Beyond that was the forward fuselage and flight deck, where Coast Guardsmen Schenck huh, had worked so feverishly to save lives in the cockpit and hellhole. Nearby was the impenage, the tail section, remarkably intact in contrast to the rest of the plane. There was also another large fragment, the fuselage housing the galley area, a wide and spacious compartment beneath the main cabin, served by two narrow elevators and lined with handsome sta stainless steel ovens. The scattered record stretched for exactly 1,600 feet from where the wing had first touched. The daylight also revealed the character of the desolate terrain. The pools of water, for the most part half a foot to three feet in depth, were not isolated pools, even though they looked that way. They were part of the continuous river that makes up the Everglades, almost as wide as the entire state of Florida. It could be called neither land nor water. The sawgrass was an intruder in the river, as well as the metal and jet fuel sprayed across it near Levee 67A. In among this were the bodies of the dead, many of them ripped with strange long slashes. Later it was discovered that these ribbon-like wounds were caused by the edges of the sawgrass. The removal of the dead was slow. The identification of the bodies, many of them without clothing and identification, was slower. The major investigation effort at the site by the National Transportation Safety Board would have to wait until all the dead had been removed. Meanwhile, the grim statistics were reaching a stabilization point, but the figures still fluctuated because of the difficulty in identifying the dead and because of duplicated counting in some cases. The first basic summary showed incorrectly that 80 had incredibly survived crash and 97 were dead. By late Saturday, the count had shifted. Only 77 survived. The rest ranged from fair to good. There were horror stories behind these numbers. A driver of a panel truck gagging and sickened by his cargo. A van full of severed arms and legs. An undertaker preparing the body of a pregnant woman. The fetus pushed far up into the chest cavity. A sight in all his experience he had never seen and could hardly bear. The body of a child covered with mud beside a doll in the Everglades swamp. There were, these were ugly stories. Okay, The body of an attractive girl who turned out not to be a girl but a transvestite. A husband traveling under an assumed name with his mistress. The looting of bodies and the erroneous report that the crime was done by some of the... I'm going to try this. I'm not, no insult to the Native Americans. <laughs> um, by, by some of the, the, the Mikosuke tribe of the Seminole Indians who lived in the area. The report was quickly withdrawn by the perpetrator of the story. This tribe, which can live, if needed, by hunting for deer, the turtle, the frog, fortified by figs, avocado, wild grapes, plums, has rigid taboos about stealing and, and deep-abiding respect for the spirits of the deceased. They bury their dead in watery mounds and embrace a belief in the inevitable. They believe strongly in the Great Spirit. Their morals are higher than, than the white man, and in the mystical ambiance of the Everglades, they frequently report the sighting of ghosts. They fear above all death by hanging, since they feel it will imprison the soul and the body forever. Otherwise, the spirit leaves through the mouth and, and is free to continue its existence. So intense was the belief and all that had to do with the dead that the Misazuki tribe explained that their schoolhouse could not be used to lay out the dead from Flight 401 because they would have to burn it afterward. 
yet they helped in the rescue work without stint. These feelings, this mood, these moors hang over the atmosphere of the Everglades, where the Indian legends merge with the roar of jets. The events that were to follow later in the tragedy of Flight 401 were to blend the ancient with the modern jet age in a pervading and inexplicable way. But the dominant question the day after the crash was why the tragedy took place at all. Investigators of the National Transportation Safety Board began their off-site part of the intensive probe even before all the bodies had been cleared from the wreckage. At that time, they knew little of the details of what had happened inside the cockpit just before the crash. The information was fragmentary. The scene was one of disjointed confusion. At the start of the investigation, they knew simply that Flight 401 had disappeared from the traffic controller's radar screen at almost 11.42 p.m. The weather conditions and visibility were excellent. That it was the first fatal accident involving the new white-body jumbo jets, also. It also carried the potential of matching the record for the worst single aircraft crash in history, with its total of 176 passengers aboard. Exactly that number had been killed when a Soviet jet exploded on crashing near the Moscow airport. The fact that there miraculously were many survivors of Flight 401 <clears throat> saved it from equaling that grisly record. But the event did mark the first fatalities among the jumbo jet series. Up to this date, none had been recorded involving the Douglas DC-10, the Boeing 747, or the Lockheed 1011. All of the craft in this series had won great respect from the crew members, except for minor bugs, the 1011 was regarded as a masterpiece of modern engineering. I can vouch, I'm going to stop right for a second, I can vouch for that. When I was traveling to Europe, I saw one of these things, and I believe in Cleveland, I think. And uh, wow, they were absolutely, absolutely beautiful airplanes. Different, shaped different from any jumbo jet there was. Just beautiful airplanes. Never got to fly on one, but saw one. The investigation of the causes would pose massive problems and require careful analysis. There would be an exact history of the flight to recreate, a study of injuries to be compiled, a long look at the survival aspects, an assemblage of many of the critical parts of the plane, a thorough review of the flight recording instruments and the tape recordings of the conversation inside the cockpit, as well as the dialogue, with the, approach, with the approach control tower. All of this would take time, skill, and exactitude on the part of the NTSB's bureaus of aviation safety and technology. They would, be, they would be searching not only for the reason for the L-1011's crash, but for what could be learned in the way of future safety. The focus of the investigation would center on what, what, what was called the digital flight data recorder system, a new system that would print out extensive information about the history of the flight. This, together with Fairchild Cockpit Voice Recorder, would give a picture of what had happened from the technical point of view with unprecedented accuracy. The technical crew of the NTSB retrieved the shockproof instrument box and tapes that would help unravel the mystery. It was intact in the nose section, as was other elaborate electronics gear, which seemed basically undamaged. Then they set about the painstaking job of bringing major pieces of the plane out of the swamp and over to the Opalaka Air Base. Here, parts of the plane would be reassembled in order to reconnect or to reconstruct a partial mock-up. As this was being carried out, a committee called the Human Factors Group would try to trace what happened to both crew and passengers in the accident and what they had observed. They would have their hands full. There was the painful job of interviewing survivors, even those who lay in pain on their hospital beds. There would be many questions to be answered from the point of view of future air safety. What section of the plane were most of the survivors in? Were the seatbelts effective even in the face of the tremendous impact of the crash? Were the seats themselves some protection? 
The diffuselage and frame of the plane protects them from injury. What injuries were most prevalent? Could there be more survivors if, the, if, if certain changes were made in the design of the plane? What was the seating pattern? What did the passengers and crews notice just before the impact that would give a clue to the reason for the crash? Miraculously, the prognosis for most of the survivors was reasonably good. Stewardess Mercedes Ruiz was interviewed on her hospital bed. Her scalp badly lacerated and her pelvis broken. She would recover and return to flying. The same was true of most of the other flight attendants. Adrian Hamilton, Sue Tebbs, Pat Georgia, Trudy Smith, Sharon Tratsu, Dorothy Warnock, Beverly Raposa all suffered badly, but would recover in varying degrees as time wore on. In spite of their pain and discomfort, they patiently answered the questions brought to them by the investigators, but none were able to trace the cause of the crash. The consensus of their recollection was the suddenness, the unexpectedness, the shock of the impact coming without warning of any kind. But two of the flight attendant team would never join them again. The body of Stephanie Stanich, who had just sat a few feet away from Beverly Raposa in the tail section of the plane, was found strapped in her jump seat a considerable distance away from the wreckage. There had been hope that she would be found alive because some thought they had seen her walking away from the site in the days. But the hope was tragically unfounded. Pat Gissies had sat just forward of her on the port side of the plane, opposite Mercedes Ruiz. She too had died, according to the agonizing grief of her injured crewmates. But in spite of their own personal recognition of this, the investigators would have to press on. The flight crew, of course, held the key to the exact cause of the crash. But here, the investigators would be stymied. Captain Loft and First Officer Stockstill were dead. Second Officer Repo lay on his hospital bed, hovering on the edge of death and unable to speak coherently. His prognosis was not good. The outlook for, te te the outlook for technical specialist Angela Donadeo was better although he was in great pain and under heavy sedation. The basic known facts immediately after the crash were flimsy. There had been a problem with the landing gear warning light. The plane had circled to check it out. It was preparing to come back in for a normal landing, since the problem with the landing gear seemed to be resolved. The ground controller st stated that there was no concrete warning of an impending crash, aside from what appeared to be a false radar reading. The crew of Flight 401 showed no evidence of any special difficulty or alarm. The final message to the tower from the crew was that they were turning left and heading in a heading of 180 degrees. Although he had blacked out immediately on impact, Angelo Donadeo struggled to recall for the NTSB investigators those final moments at the cockpit in Hellhole. He remembered the problems with the warning light bulb and assembly, the frustrations of Loft and Stockstill as they tried to take out the unit and put it back in. He recalled many other details, but because there was no indication of an emergency up to the last fraction of a second, there was little there was little of importance to attach to the details at the time. The entire accident happened almost totally without warning, even to the flight crew. For those who died or those who survived, there was a sudden moment of truth with less warning than given a drowning man who sees his death coming. Technical specialist Donna Dale recalled the calmness in the cockpit during the last moments of the flight, punctuated only by irritation at the stubborn warning light. As I can recall, Donna Dale told the investigators, the light assembly had been removed, and I don't recall who removed it. When I had turned around, I noticed that the second officer had the light assembly in his hand. He had snapped the cover open, examined something, re-snapped the cover shut, and I had turned around and looked in some other area, and I don't recall who actually reinstalled the light. After the crash, the assembly was found inserted in its housing in a 90-degree angle from its proper insertion. The fact that the assembly would not snap in properly had irked and distracted Captain Loft and First Officer Stockstill. 
minor as this was, it could add to the other distractions, which in turn could have drawn attention of the crew, at the expense of not noticing that anything was going wrong with the flight. There was still more distraction affecting Captain Locke and First Officer Stocksdale. When Second Officer Reeple reported from the hellhole that it was impossible to see the red lines that had that, that had to match up on the nose gear to virtually indicate that it was down and locked. This added another delay as the plane circled, getting ready to come back in the landing pattern. Angelo Donadeo also reported that there were problems of hearing in the cockpit. Probably the essential reason for none of the crews being aware of the warning chime that indicated they were starting to lose altitude. I had an air vent alongside me, Donadeo said to the safety board probers, and I had to strain in order to hear. Donadeo, who was the only person who had been on the flight deck and was still able to talk, had another key recollection, which involved the automatic pilot. He helped search for a clue as to what happened that night that might possibly have knocked the automatic pilot out of kilter. Not generally known at the time was that the only way that that could have, not, sorry, not generally known at the time was that only a very slight pressure was needed to disengage this automatic control, which in turn could start a totally unexpected descent. What actions the pilot and co-pilot took during the time Flight 401 stayed in the holding pattern were critical, down to the smallest detail. First officer Stockstill, the co-pilot, had been forced into an awkward situation. He was in charge of flying the plane, but at the same time, he was the only one near enough to the stubborn warning light to do anything about it. Captain Lopp was freer to maneuver, but he was in an awkward position too. He could barely reach the troublesome light. Donadeo, sitting behind him in the jump seat, had noticed Stockstill's left hand on the light assembly panel, with Loft trying to help him. Did Loft jolt the steering column or accidentally change the throttle setting? The captain either released or removed his seatbelt. I couldn't see, Donadale said, and then reached across the pedestal and was trying to assist the first officer with the installation of a light assembly. Or remove it. I don't know. He was forward to the throttles. His left arm was over the top of the glare shield, and he was leaning across with his right arm forward of the throttles. Perhaps here was the key to the mystery. What seemed to add up was a combination of circumstances imposing themselves on a crew trying calmly and diligently to solve the problem at hand. But there was not enough evidence to tell. The only other possible source of direct information was Second Officer Repo, the flight engineer. But Repo was in critical condition on his hospital bed, barely coherent and barely able to talk to his family. Repo, with his robust sense of humor and intense love for the planes he flew, could therefore not offer any solution to the cause. The medical outlook was not good. He lingered some 30 hours after the crash and finally died of multiple injuries. Early Sunday morning. He was the last of the assigned flight crew to die. Of the others, only Captain Loft had clung precariously to an hour or so of life before he succumbed in the cockpit. Nothing in their last communication to the tower indicated they expected anything disastrous at all. Only the stunning impact of the crash could have let them know it had, it had happened. The same was true of the passengers. The investigation would turn to them for any possible enlightenment, but there could be little hope for any. Al Morris, who was to live in spite of broken ribcage, could only recall the seats coming towards him and how his frustrated anger at Eastern was tempered by the appearance of Frank Foreman in the middle of the Everglades. He was to recover. Ironically, he had been one of the passengers who had switched to Flight 401 from another reservation. His wife did not know until 4 in the morning that he was in the crash. Jerry Escal, whose letter of praise never reached Eastern, remembers only the crash and the debris and the fact that he felt born again. He would recover slowly and painfully from his multiple fractures 
and lacerations and donate over $1,000 to the Miami hospital that helped him toward recovery. His wife had taken a plane the night before, and she, perhaps, might not have been so lucky. Barry and Ann Connell <clears throat> excuse me, would be eternally grateful. They, too, had been scheduled for a different flight. In addition, they almost missed Flight 401 entirely. Beyond that, they were offered seats in the first-class section, where very few passengers survived, but they refused the offer. They lived, and their injuries were light. The outcome busterous their abiding faith in God. Ronald Infantino suffered only the loss of his bride, Farah, but an agonizing recovery period. When gas gangrene set in, he was flown to a special hospital in Panama for high-pressure oxygen treatment. This deadly infection can develop when the organisms of the Clostridium family, which live without oxygen, produce toxins in the dead tissue. The toxins kill the muscle fibers around them, and more dead tissue is created. The invasion goes on as the tissues ferment to make the bubbles of gas that give the dreaded disease its name. Infantino survived miraculously. He recovered slowly but still had no feeling in his right hand, and his legs gave him trouble. The accident affected his whole life and philosophy. The nurse who took care of him in a long recovery program inspired him with a fresh belief in God, a belief so deep that it permeated his life. He went on from his studies in aviation administration to start his own successful commuter airline. Its symbol is a cross. His religion was superficial before, but it is deep now. Eventually, he remarried the nurse who helped him back to health and introduced him to a new concept of Christianity. The fate of the passengers marked the fragility of life and the ironic twist that affected their individual destinies. The question of why some were killed and some survived would never be answered. Yet there were clues hidden in the pattern of death, injury, and survival that might have realistic bearing on what future aircraft design could be developed or, you know, to fix or soften the tragic losses. As chairman of the Human Factors Group, Gary Wallout, directed the intensive study of the results of the crash, its detailed effects on passengers and crew, and the factors that affected the outcome. The analysis was cold and detached. It would never reflect the sorrow, the grief, the pain, or even the joy of survival. The final figures were cold, shocking, but also perplexing, that so many survived in a plane that was almost totally destroyed. Some sections, like the cockpit area and galley, remained relatively intact. And these non-structural non equipment, like electronic equipment, even units from the galley, even the galley elevators, were salvageable. In fact, some of this costly equipment was still in usable condition. And the final figures, a total of 99 of those aboard the plane were killed. There were 77 survivors. Of these, 60 cases were serious, 17 had minor injuries, or none. The softmen and waters of the Everglades were credited for the reasonably high survival rate and for the prevention of fire breaking out in full force. Beyond the initial flash, the fuel, vapor, the fuel vapors ignited. For those who did survive, this lack of fire was merciful, but it could not prevent the injuries. The most prevalent of these were leg and rib fractures. There were also, there were also spine and pelvis fractures and some burns during the brief flash fire. The fatalities were found to be most frequently in the, most frequently the result of flailed chest, and blood impact injuries. Wallout's investigating team determined where the surviving and deceased passengers had been seated in the airplane in the hope that survival aspect could be traced and accounted for. Over 40 passengers and flight attendants were interviewed and traced to the exact seat they were sitting in at the moment of impact. A random checkerboard pattern emerged in the seating diagram that 
that revealed a fateful tapestry governed more by destiny than design. In row 15, six had survived, sitting side by side across the beam of the plane. Two had survived unhurt on the right. In row 18, the passenger in CE was killed. His seatmate in CF survived. In row 33, everyone was killed. Many who lived stayed strapped to their seats, but the same was true of many who died. Each passenger, excuse me, seemed to notice something different about the crash. The passenger in 7C felt the plane nose up and heard a roar of the engines just before the impact, as did several others, as did several others. In 15H, the passenger felt the airplane shaking violently and coming apart. Then he noticed his seat partner seemingly on the ceiling. Not everyone remembered the flash fire. The strength of the seat belts, the sturdiness of the seats, and the body structure of the giant plane were credited for saving many lives. The safety board has several guidelines that determine survivability in an accident. These include a re relatively intact environment for the occupant's crash forces, which do not exceed the, the limits of human tolerance, adequate occupant restraints, and sufficient escape provisions. Under these qualifications, the accident could not be classified in the survivable category. Yet, 77 still lived. The seats were of a new design. Energy absorbers, <coughs> excuse me, energy absorbers in the support structure cushioned the forces of the crash. Each of the seats that was bolted to a platform and attached to the basic skeleton of the plane stayed together. Where it didn't, many passengers survived because they were thrown clear of the wreckage and at reduced velocities. The checkerboard pattern that emerged on the diagram was hard to fathom. Aside from these conclusions, it could not explain why many had died at this moment, and some had not. In a fraction of a second, the lives of 176 persons were shockingly changed. Some to die, some to gain a new faith in God, some to suffer the rest of their lives. The damage, of course, was more than physical. Nightmares plagued a great number of survivors. They were vivid, real, persistent, and almost three-dimensional clarity. And although the crash was over in a single excruciating moment, it continued to live as if it were real, on the screens of the minds of dozens who were on the flight. They were more than dreams. They were more than dreams. They were as if I were reliving the scene in total, was one report. It was not a recollection. I was there again. The scenes were real as concrete. The Human Factors Group was not assigned or equipped to move into this area, yet it was one of the most important aftermaths of the crash. If thoughts and dreams were as real as concrete, wouldn't this forever haunt the mind and unconscious of the living victims and those whom they loved? What urge was it that kept the spirit of all those passengers and crew members who survived on the edge of being in, in, indomitable? Some mentioned that they felt that they had died and then returned to life. Recent studies by serious scientists such as Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Dr. William Moody have shown that patients whose vital life signs have stopped and who later recover report vivid experiences where they have been greeted by friends and relatives who have died before them. For the first time, science is taking seriously the possibility that we live after death. Dr. Kubler-Ross and Dr. Moody are not the only scientists involved with the serious study of whether we live after death. Dr. Ian Stevenson of the University of Virginia Medical School has conducted extensive laboratory experiments with mediums in the field of reincarnation and limited but interesting results. Dr. Carlos Osis of the American Society for, Psychological, for, for Psychical Research has completed an elaborate study entitled Deathbed Observations by Physicians and Nurses in 1961, which closely paralleled the more recent studies. They deal with the subject rationally and cautiously, but bring a fresh modern viewpoint to an area neglected by science for such a long time. 
Because they indicate hope instead of gloom, they represent a more enlightened view of a subject that is usually looked at with fear. The fact that three separate scientific studies indicate that comfort, not fear, is the dominant emotion in most dying persons can bring solace to those who have suffered the loss of loved ones. There were other inexplicable events following the wake of the crash. Satan Messina, who had stood by the gate waiting for the flight her husband was on, not only heard the familiar family whistle alone that night. Her two sons who were there with her heard it shortly after 11.30 p.m., at a moment that could have marked the time of impact or close to it. Hers was a close-knit family. She was devoted to her husband, Rosario. We were so very, very close, closer than two people could ever be. The whole family, my two sons, Rosario and me. I loved him and he loved me more than two people could ever love. The premonition she felt before the flight, before Rosario's trip to New York, was not based on her own instinct alone. Rosario had told her with sad conviction that sometime before that, Sadie, I'm going to die. I'm going to die young, and I don't want to leave you. Sadie Messina faced a world of loneliness after her loss. She would see his face often at night. It was real, she says, not as if in a dream. It was as if he were in the room. I see his face often, and he is never smiling. I don't think he is, he is happy at all. One night, as she prepared to go to sleep, she felt a presence beside her. She knew immediately, immediately that it was Rosaria. He took her in Rosario. He, he took her in his arms and held her. She never wanted it to end. In the morning, she felt as if her limbs were frozen. She tried to move but couldn't. The doctor discovered that she was temporarily paralyzed, a condition she gradually overcame in spite of her loneliness and melancholy. The, the, the incident seemed to punctuate not only fragility of life, but the durability of thoughts and ideas. Was there the remote possibility, as Sadie Messina almost felt, that the dead could not only survive after death, but could return as articulate entity? But where was the geography then? Where a non-physical entity could exist as an individual form, fully conscious of itself and the surroundings, communicating not only with others on that plane, but on rare occasions with the physical world he had left? Was there a clue to this in the dreams that were so striking and real that could barely be distinguished from reality? The tragedy of Flight 401 would continue to exist in the minds and dreams of those who survived. An indelible reality that could never leave them. But what about those like Rosario Messina or 2nd Officer Repo or Captain Loft who had died? Could thoughts and dreams continue among those who were no longer alive in the crash? But these questions were not being asked in the days immediately following the holiday disaster. They were the solemn funeral. You know, there were the solemn funeral services to endure and the desperate work of the hospital to keep the living alive. The flight crew was buried on the same day, shortly after the crash. Services for Captain Bob Loft were held at a United Presbyterian Church. Services for First Officer Bob Stockstill were held in his hometown of St. Martinville, Louisiana. A requiem mass, mass, a requiem mass for, was held for Second Officer Don Repo. He was popular, well-loved. The church was filled to overflowing. Even before the printout of the flight record, even before the print of the flight recorder and the transcription of the voice tapes, theories were being formed. The consensus was that the crew was distracted by the problem with the morning light, and that somehow the plane had diverged from its altitude in a way that was unnoticed by the crew. Yet the crew was experienced and competent, with thousands of hours of flying time. There was the warning chime that would sound when the plane diverged from its assigned altitude of two thousand feet. 
There was the autopilot, which had its own enunciator signal to indicate the altitude it had been set for, to say nothing of the standard altimeters. Slowly, the evidence was gathered, the tapes transcribed, the printouts assembled, and the data analyzed. The fault, wherever it lay, had to be found as in air crashes. One supervisor in charge of clearing the major parts wreckage arrived at the scene of the bodies, at the scene as the bodies were still being taken out of the area. He would return to the site every working day for five weeks to complete the job using skilled riggers and special loaders adapted for the marshy terrain. It was a grueling job, but he took it as, as part of something which had to be done. But a year later, he began walking, waking up with nightmares that haunted him. Not about the fear of flying, but about the scene of the wreckage itself. From the probe, clues might be found that would save others from a similar tragedy. Gradually, possible causes were eliminated. The crew was trained and qualified. There was no doubt about that. The autopsy on Captain Loft revealed a small benign, benign brain tumor, but careful analysis of what happened showed that this had nothing to do with the accident. He was functioning perfectly. And a first-class medical certificate issued only a few weeks before showed that his eyesight needed correcting glasses only for near vision. Don Repo required the same correction, but neither of these affected their capabilities in flying the plane. Bert Stock still had no limitation placed on his medical certificate. There was no basic trouble with the aircraft. Plane number 310 was fully certified. There was no malfunction of the structure or the power systems, and it met every possible gov government regulation. The AL-1011 was then, and as is, is now, a favorite of the pilots who fly them. Its performance is magnificent, and, ironically, the post-accident examination showed that there was nothing wrong with the nose gear. But gradually, the, the, the subtleties began to emerge. The seat cord chime that, that warned of the departure from the assigned altitude of 2,000 feet was so faint that it could barely be heard on the cockpit voice recorder tape. Further, it sounded only in one speaker near second officer Repo's seat, and Repo was down in the hellhole when it sounded, trying to peer through the telescope sight to look at the nose gear. But why was it dark there in the wheel well? So that the diagnosis of the problem was delayed. Another factor emerged out of the complex subtleties of the probe. There was no light switch down in the hellhole. The switch was on the eyebrow panel, a panel immediately above his eye level of the captain's side, of, immediately above the eye level of the captain's side of the flight deck. The crew apparently was misinformed. They thought the light that would eliminate the nose gear went on automatically when the landing gear was down. All this could contribute measurably to the distraction of the flight crew as it circled over the Everglades. There was also the problem that the only warning that the plane had left its assigned altitude was the half-second C-cord chime that was barely audible and had gone unnoticed. If the plane had been at a higher altitude, that is 2,000 feet, an amber warning light would have flashed to show that the plane was slipping out of, out of its assigned altitude. This warning was eliminated from the lower altitudes because of the proliferation of the panel lights that flashed as the approach is neared. The critical point that emerged in the investigation lay in the operation of the autopilot. Weeks after the Flight 401 disaster, a representative of the Airline Pilots Association questioned an L-1011 technical expert during the hearing on the accident. Question. Were the crew members taught that the autopilot engaged in command mode, altitude holder engaged, that a slight bump or pressure on either steering yoke would disengage the altitude hold portion, would or could disengage the altitude hold portion of the autopilot? Answer. They were not taught that. As a matter of fact, I don't think that very many people were aware of this until after the accident. 
question. I agree. If there is, if there is, okay, if there is a disconnect of the sort, an inverted disconnect, or however you want to call it, what indication is there? Answer: Your indication would be the enunciator in front of your particular seed. The prism would flip over. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have the altitude showing. Question: Does the light in the altitude hole, hole selector switch go out, or does it stay on? Answer: It should go out. Question: And I believe you have just said what the indication what the indication was in the enunciator panel? Answer, right. Question, is there any indication in the avionics flight control system warning enunciator panel? Answer, I don't think so. Question, does the autopilot aural disengage warning light sound the whaler? Answer, no, sir. Question, does the autopilot engage lever drop in this case? Answer, negative. Question, what is the primary indication that the altitude hole was engaged when the altitude switch is pushed? Answer. The way we teach it and use it is you push the altitude in to switch to, to switch light and watch the enunciator for the prism to flip over, showing what altitude. This informs you that you are in effect at excuse me, at altitude hold. Question. Are you aware that there have been cases where the AFCS mode enunciator on the corresponding side of the engaged autopilot? Indicated altitude hold disengagement, while the opposite side mode enunciator still indicated that the altitude hold was engaged? Answer. I have heard this, but I have not personally seen it, so it would be hearsay. Question. Are you aware that, first, that the first officer cannot see the captain's enunciator panel if they are both in the correct position in their seats? Answer. Affirmative. Question. Assuming that these cases are correct, could you agree that this is a highly undesirable fault in the, in the enunciator system? Answer. I have to think about that for a minute. Question. The one says it is on and one says it is off, and one pilot cannot see the others? Answer. We have other redundant characteristics. Let's see. It. Okay. It would be undesirable, though. But all this remained in Enigma because the co-pilot system should have been in use since he had taken over control of the airplane. If so, the enunciator should have shown that the plane was no longer on autopilot control. Coolly, logically, the long search continued over many weeks, with attention centered on why the plane went into its slow and unexpected descent. The logic boiled down to four possibilities. First was the possible physical incapacity of the captain, which extensive checking showed was not a factor. Second was the autopilot problem, which could have been a major cause. Third was the question of flight, of flight crew training, and there were some critical loopholes in this. Last, there were the flight crew distractions, which were so intense that they could not, that they could have been a heavy contributor. What finally emerged was a tragic contribution to the ancient axiom of engineering known as Murphy's Law. If anyone can, if anything can go wrong, it will. The crash was not the result of a single error. It was, the, it was a combination of several minor deviations from, from normal operating procedures, which triggered a sequence of events with, with disastrous effects as the National Transportation Safety Board eventually put it. But the fault had to be placed somewhere directly. The ultimate safety board decision was that the flight crew failed to monitor the flight instruments during the final four minutes of the flight. In failing to do this, the unexpected descent was not noticed until it was too late. The reason for the failure was obvious. The problem with the landing gear, warning light, had drawn attention away from one major job that had to be done, the flying of the airplane. The decision had to be reached but the circumstances were such that a simplistic placing of blame was the easy way out. It left a lot of open questions. Why wasn't the flight crew adequately instructed 
that a slight nudge could dislodge the autopilot. Why was the altitude warning chime designed with such a low volume and in a place where the captain and co-pilot could barely hear it, even under normal circumstances? Why should there even be a possibility that the co-pilot could be led by a false annunciator signal into thinking that his autopilot altitude was still holding? And while the approach controller needed three full scans to determine whether an altitude reading was wrong or not, what could be done to improve the system so that clear warning could be given when, when noticed on the scope? Why was there no light switch down the hellhole so that Don Repo could have made an immediate and swift visual check of the nose gear? While the flight crew was buried in the cold finger of guilt pointing to, at them, the circumstances were such that a large number of airmen could say, There, but for the grace of God, go I. In fact, the final recommendations of the National Transport Safety Board were such that they implied that the guilt should have been dispersed over a whole area, over a wide area. In the future, a light switch would be required down the hellhole, near the optical site that viewed the nose gear. If this had been available at the time of the Flight 401, Don Repo could have finished his job in a matter of moments, and Flight 401 could have come in promptly for a smooth landing. The next recommendation from the safety board would require that a flashing light would warn the crew of any divergence from the altitude set for the autopilot to maintain. This would, this would buttress the gentle C-cord chime that had been inaudible to the crew of Flight 401. If the recommended light had flashed over the Everglades, there is little doubt that the unexpected descent would have been checked and the flight would have come in safely. The board also requested a review of the ways to set up procedures for an air traffic controller to warn quickly when, the mark when a marked deviation was noticed on the radar screen. If this system had been in effect, Flight 401 would have had time to avert the accident. Out of the investigation also came a program to install terrain avoidance radar system. Okay, warning the pilot as he dangerously approached any land or hills or mountains beneath him in time enough to take defensive action. A new computerized system for the ground controller, known as Minimum Safe Altitude Warning System, was put in development by the Federal Aviation Administration. It would continuously monitor aircraft altitude to make sure that any planes would be at a safe altitude above the highest point in the area. This development grew out of Everglades crash. If it had been installed on that holiday evening in December of 72, the lives of nearly 100 people would have been saved, and the crew would not have died in the shadow of, in the shadow of guilt, which surely was not altogether theirs. Any crewman whose plane is in a crash, for which he was even faintly responsible, is bound to feel guilt, especially if he took pride in, that, in the performance of his job. All three crewmen of Flight 401 took an immeasurable amount of pride in both their jobs and in the new L-1011 a plane that all three had revealed that they loved and respected. But the story of Flight 401 did not come to an end at the close of the safety board hearing. What was to follow would be, to many, a strange and revealing series of events of unusual impact that went beyond the modern jet age and into the unknown. Gradually, the stories of the L-1011 disaster in the Everglades began slipping from the front pages of Miami newspapers. There was a tragic aftermath the claims for damages that can never ease, ease the anguish, the, the implementing of the procedures and recommendations that would quite realistically assure that an accident of that type, at least, would never happen again. Eastern Airlines, both as, both as a corporate entity and as an individual, did everything humanly possible to assist the victims, demonstrating ably that in times of stress in corporation, a corporation that does indeed have a soul. 
The L-1011 sister ships, the Plan 310, were given lavish engineering and maintenance attention so that the growing fleet became a favorite of pilots and flight engineers, in spite of minor bugs that could infest the aircraft at times. The chain of circumstances that led to the accident were now effectively blocked. The plane would go on to become one of the safest and best in the air. It was a graceful, beautiful craft, in spite of the lingering memory of that December evening. Flight crews and flight attendants bid enthusiastically for its schedules. The enthusiasm was not ill-founded. The Al-1011 was quiet and roomy. In fact, the big jet engines were the quietest in the world of aviation. Its wings were designed with direct lift, which eliminated annoying ups and downs on approach. The entire rear stabilizer moved with the controls rather than just the aft section of it. This provided sure, more depth control. And it was economical. It burned only 51 gallons of fuel per passenger, compared to 65 burned by the older jets. It was reported that the ill-fated flight crew, Captain Loft, 1st Officer Stocksdale, and 2nd Officer Don Repo had been as much in love with the craft as the other flight crews. Repo, especially, had an interest, had an intense attachment for it. A sturdy, a sturdy verbal man with salt and pepper sideburns, he was popular with both flight crews and flight attendants. He had a lot of nervous energy, one stewardess described him. He was a very conscientious person, but he laughed a lot with us, and he was soft-spoken. I never heard him raise his voice. Captain Loft was well thought of by his associates, too, but was, con was considered more subdued in spite of his occasional salty language. Bert Stock still was more communicative with his cabin crews, but Loft always dominated the scene with his athletic stature and sense of command. All three were professionals of the highest caliber, according to their peers. They took an inordinate amount of pride in their work. The tragic web that entrapped them could not be considered a reflection of their capabilities. Pilots who flew with them swore by them. Some of them felt that if the trio remained conscious of what had happened, it had cut into their deepest souls. One terrifying moment had engulfed them so suddenly that they, along with the others on the flight, had no time to comprehend the enormity of the event. In a moment of crisis like this, where life suddenly changes into death, or the immediate certainty of death, those who have not been through it cannot experience or imagine what the mental and emotional shock would be to the person being itself. There, there, there would possibly be, would, oh my gosh, there possibly, there would be, there would possibly be, I'm just going to say, there would probably be incredulous under amazement, and perhaps the thought, this cannot be happening to me. Then the struggle, the will to live, the fight to prevent death, where the force will sometimes, where the force of will can sometimes overcome the hopelessness of the physical destruction. Even with the body shattered and death near, deathbed observations of doctors and nurses have indicated that patients have been known to recognize the condition and deal with it in whatever way there is possible, including the acceptance of the inevitable. But the question was what part of the dying person is doing the recognizing? What is it aware of? under these sudden unexpected intolerable conditions. A new scientific trend leans towards the conclusion that the consciousness of the self is not the brain or the mind. It is associated with them, but apart from them. Consciousness is being considered more of a sensor or an observer than an integral part of the system, just as a stream of electrons are part of, but separate from, the wire that conducts them. Electrons are indestructible. A wire is not. Where the consciousness, the energy that is the motivator and activator of the brain and nervous system, 
simply disappear at death? Or would it continue in a non-molecular and non-atomic entity in a form of energy that physics has only yet to discover? Many minds of wisdom and stature think so, but none communicates the idea so none communicates the idea so that all accept it. There is controversy and censure even for those who wanted to probe the idea with an open mind. But this question would have a direct bearing on what was to happen later on the L-1011 sister ships of Plane 310. And that would have profound effect on many people in the aviation world and outside it. Chapter 6 When the Scandinavian Airlines flight attendant brought up the Eastern Airlines story to me in the spring of 1974, I knew little about the theory of ghosts or apparitions. This was foreign territory to me. The idea of attempting to communicate with the dead was a vague and remote possibility described in some literature or para- on parapsychology. Some of it fairly convincing, others not, other not convincing at all. While I never scoffed at the idea, I couldn't buy it without a lot more evidence demonstrated than, what, than that which I had run across. I didn't know then that some surprising events were going to develop and that they were going to have a strong, serious influence on my entire outlook. At that time, I was completely absorbed in writing about stark reality, the great potential danger of nuclear power plants and their proliferation throughout the world. Accidents had been happening frequently in these plants, but they were being soft-pedaled to the extent that the public knew little about their dangers. I had gone to Nigeria in 73 to begin research on the story of the loss of virus, which shortly before had just been isolated in the laboratories at Yale University. After one laboratory technician at Yale was fatally stricken with the disease and a leading virologist had barely scraped through alive, it was decided that the virus was so deadly that it could no longer be studied at Yale. All the vials full of blood specimens from the victims of the virus were incinerated, except a small batch which was sent to a new maximum security laboratory at the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta. This was a story of science at its best, and I became completely absorbed in it. At Nigeria's University of I- of Ibadan, both American and Nigerian scientists tried to figure out a way to combat the terrifying disease. It was a large university with an equally large medical center that was impressive under any standards. During one serene evening, there, with the African sunset blazing over the rainforest to the west, I chatted with the Nigerian doctor in charge of medical and surgical research at the university. He was a quiet, intelligent man with a soft, musical voice. He had studied medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and was fully trained in modern research techniques. It is strange, he told me, that modern medical science has often overlooked what could be learned from the primitive practices. How can our sophisticated knowledge be matched by someone who is untrained, I asked him. I'm not demeaning modern medicine by any means, he continued. It is just that in the headlong rush toward developing miracle drugs and complex instruments, I feel that medicine has left large pockets of unexplored territory. Modern science is miraculous but incomplete. I was interested because in the various stories I was doing, there always seemed to be a point where modern objective science came to a dead end, and frankly, admitted it. Doctors could work effectively up to the time of death. Psychiatrists could help patients with equal effectiveness, but they were at a dead end as far as deep psychosis was concerned. Physicists were reaching a dead end as far as particle psychics were concerned, particle physics, I'm sorry, were concerned. I was wondering what a particle psychic was. Because they began to find, they, find, they began to find paradoxes at the end of the line. 
The very observation of matter beyond the electron or proton changed the behavior of the particles so that they could not be observed or traced in their normal activity. After I finished the research on the loss of virus study, I was going directly to Brazil to research the strange story of Arago, the peasant surgeon. His miracle cures have been verified by both American and Brazilian doctors with whom he cooperated fully. But the doctors could no further the doctors could go no further with this. They had no scientific explanation as to how he was able to operate without pain, fear, bleeding, or post-operative infection. He could cut through the viscera without using hemostats to clamp off the blood vessels. He could roughly shove a kitchen knife up under a patient's eyelid and extrude the eyeball grotesquely to treat the case. I'm going to try this. Retinoblastoma, okay, or cancer of the eyeball. The patient would be fully conscious, yet would not flinch at the unsterile knife, as the unsterile knife came toward the eye. There would be no pain, no bleeding. I became more convinced that there were many phenomena beyond our comprehension. Could ghosts be one of them? The cultural construct of Brazil was different from that of the U.S. It would be a form of arrogance for either country to say that the philosophic outlook of the other was either more or less valid. Many of the most educated and cultured Brazilians accepted spiritism, the belief in reality of communication with the dead, as a matter of course. They rarely questioned it. People of all walks of life were mediums there, acting as channels of communication with spirits, according according to the precepts. In Brazil, I discovered the studies of the late Luis Luis Rodriguez, a brilliant student of the psychic, a successful pharmaceutical manufacturer. He had spent years trying to find a bridge between modern psychiatry and primitive techniques for treating psychosis, just as United Nations scientists were to do later in their Nigerian studies. His theme was that Freud, Alder, Jung, and others simply did not go far enough in their probing into the depths of the human psyche. Interestingly, Freud once expressed regret for not moving into the study of the occult. In a letter to the Advisory Council of the American Psychical Institute, 1921, he wrote, I am not one of those who, from the outset, disapproved of the study of the so-called occult psychological phenomena as unscientific, as unworthy, or even dangerous. If I were at the beginning of a scientific career instead of as now, at its end, I would perhaps choose no other field of work, in spite of its difficulties. Rodriguez was concerned with the failure of, of, of psychiatry to get at the source roots of neurosis and psychosis. He blamed it on the taboos set up by the scientific method. At times it seemed that these taboos were even stronger than those of medicine then. Thou shalt not touch was a frequent scientific attitude toward even examining such things as mediumship, ESP, psychokinesis, clairvoyance, apparitions, reincarnation, and other aspects of the unexplained. The very word occult was a turnoff. In my timid and cautious look at the stories I was getting myself into, I shunned the, I shunned the word and still, shun, and still shun it. It simply didn't fit into the vocabulary of journalism to say nothing of science. Rodriguez had a theory that every person was psychic, but more often than not, failed to realize it or develop it. Some were, of course, more psychic than others, just as some artists, musicians, and mathematicians are more talented than others. The more talented psychics were those who fell into the category of mediums. Mediumship is an emotionally charged word. It conjures up images of crystal balls and tea leaves. 
this is this is abhorrent to the modern thought. The more enlightened the more enlightened picture of a medium is that is that of one who acts as a channel for unknown forces and personalities which are not part of the structure of his conscious mind. Of course, there could be good mediums or destructive mediums, talented or untalented. Rodriguez's theory of psychosis was that it was nothing more than symptoms and syndromes signifying that the victim was in the process of becoming an intense and overwhelmed medium that neither he nor psychiatrists recognized. There was a full-blown scientific study by Dr. Raymond Prince of McGill University in Montreal that supported this theory. Coincidentally, it involved the medicine man healers in Nigeria, but was separate from the UN studies. Dr. Prince had found that the village healers treated their psychotic patients not only through the channels of mediumship, but by recognizing that their symptoms were outside forces flowing through them. The healers set about to guide these forces into, into, ah, to guide these forces into developing mediumship instead of psychosis. It was, in one sense, a process like Freud, like, like Freud's sublimation. Rodriguez commented on this in the letter to a friend. This development eradicates the the, the, the psychoneurotic or psychotic condition that heralded the flowering of the mediumship facility. This is the reason why mental diseases do not exist among those primitive people who may be counted in the millions. Mental diseases are, therefore, the fruit harvested by over-civilized man due exclusively to a condition of ignorance maintained by an exaggerated sense of sophistication and hallowed cultural superiority. What interested me was that his theories might have some direct bearing on the explanation for Arago's incredible achievements. Later, his theories would also bear heavily on my probe in the Ghost of Flight 401. Rodriguez has six clear, clear postulates that I examined in, re, in relation to the Arago story, and which I didn't realize at the time would apply to the Eastern Airlines story as well. He claimed there were basic card facts about, the man's, about man's cosmic existence. I couldn't agree. They were proven facts, but I did find his tenets provocative. Number one, that man is an incarnate soul. Number two, that his soul was not created at the time of birth. Number three, that it has had many other lives on earth and that others will consequently follow. Number four, the contact between the incarnate and the discarnate persons has been taking place since man appeared on earth for the first time. Number five, that the psychic faculty known as mediumship is the method devised by nature to establish this necessary enlightening contact. Number six, that primitive people all over the world are well acquainted with these simple facts of life. I quoted I quoted more of his letter. Hang on, oops, where'd it go? More of his letter in the book I finally completed on Arago. Well, I have learned what I've learned is that it behooves us to improve the nature of this contact by enhancing its reliability and separating it from the superstitions involved in religious creeds, doctrines, or, do or dogmas from rites or rituals. Likewise, not to waste time with obdurate skepticism that retards progress by postulating pseudo-scientific explanations that explain nothing. Rodriguez was aiming at mediumship as the root of the matter. I was aware of the great number of charlatans that had been exposed in the past. This made navigation difficult. If a channel is filled with rocks, does that make the navigation impossible? Not quite, but it does require extreme caution. I was careful to use it in my further research in Brazil. When I had begun to get intrigued by the Eastern Airlines ghost story, I wasn't fully aware why. Perhaps it was because of the futility of the everyday world. 
warist politics, venality, and outright blindness on the part of the otherwise intelligent and informed people perhaps helped serve as a catalyst to look beyond the ultra-confused world everyone was facing. Now I kept asking myself, where did the truth lie? Scientific progress was reaching a stage where, in one sense, it was irrational. Aside from the unthinkable nuclear war potential, where the United States and Russia were exactly 28 minutes away from mutual incineration and extinction, the peacetime development of the nuclear industry was building up to a similar threat. The question of life after death was coming into sharper focus for young as well as old. What intrigued me was the story of the aftermath of the L-1011. Even if it turned out to be allegory or folklore, symbolized to symbolize the contrast between the onrush of a shaky materialism and the possible reality of the spirit and life after death. The investigation of the facts of the crash itself had been simple. Likely straight interviews, the study of the FAA and NTSB documents, and other records. But what would it be like to try to track down a ghost story? How could you go about it? What specific device did psychics use to try to contact the dead? Were any of them really successful, or were they missed? Could, for instance, Second Officer Don Repo, the flight engineer, reported to have reappeared on the Mexican city, city flight, Mexico City flight, be communicated with? If so, could it be established by hard evidence that could be tracked down and followed up? It was a crazy idea, but a challenge I couldn't visualize. A challenge I couldn't visualize what was to ultimately happen. It would turn out to be far beyond my tender speculations. All right, I got us through two chapters. I'm going to go ahead and go a half hour more and uh, read uh, from chapter seven, and then we'll stop. And maybe it's a shorter chapter like this one was, but uh, yeah, we're starting to get the meat and potatoes. And like I told you guys in the beginning of reading this book, you not only get, you know, um, the believer's perspective, you also get the science the scientist's perspective on this, and that's what makes this book so cool, because this guy really, really did his research. So chapter seven. I'm just checking some out. Okay. In the middle of March 1975, I packed to go to Miami to continue the research on the oceanographic film for the USIA. The University of Miami's work in this field was outstanding. It occurred to me that as long as I was going there, that I could make at least a tentative exploration on the eastern apparitions. On the other hand, I would be much too busy with everything from whales to plankton to think about it. But perhaps I could find someone in Miami to help with the research and make some preliminary stabs at the project. I tried to fight off the idea because it was distracting. I knew I, knew I was facilitating, and that irked me. Just, just before I took the plane, I was due to receive an award from New York Academy of Sciences for the book Fever. What would they think if I mentioned I was considering writing the story of a ghost? Again, I put the Eastern idea out of my mind and concentrated on the research in oceanography and the respectful realms of science and documentary filmmaking. I took off from Miami in mid-March at 9 p.m. on Eastern's flight 401. The L-1011 Whisperliner was indeed a beautiful bird. The engine is seals, two on the wings and one high on the tail section, looked big enough for a man to stand in. Mechanics and baggage loaders were scurrying around underneath the belly, checking the umbilical cord for the, for the ground electrical system, snaking the baggage trucks up to the loading door, sliding the, the containerized freight over the rollers into the freight door, hauling the food trays in the gallery. Inside the high arch ceiling glowed a pleasant light, nice and soft. 
The seats were widely spaced and inviting. We would be flying at 30,000 feet. The weather in Miami was warm, was scattered in broken clouds. I settled back with a pre-mixed beef eater martini, took some reference material on the oceanography film out of my briefcase, and tried to concentrate on it. It was difficult to do. My mind kept going back to Flight 401. Over two years before, when 176 people sat back on the same comfortable flight and never reached their destination. I had no fear of that accident repeating itself. It had been a freak combination of circumstances that would now be almost impossible to duplicate. As flight crews will tell you, the main fear they have of flying is a limousine trip to and from the airport. I was feeling the sadness for the people of that ill-fated flight, and especially for the crew which was snarled in a web of improbable circumstances. There was no sign of repo, and I didn't expect that I would be that lucky. But without exception, the cabin crew knew of him. After the drinks had been served and the meal trays cleared, I went up the topside galley and chatted with some of the flight attendants about repo and plane 318. We were on 305, but still plane 318 was, 318 was a sister ship from several stories, from which several stories had emanated. As I found before on other flights, the reactions of the stewardesses were varied. Some would refuse to talk about the subject, others would laugh and joke about it, but confirm that they didn't like to work in the lower galley alone. Others told of girls who flatly refused to work in the lower galley at all. Some mentioned cockpit crews refused to fly 318. Not because of lack of safety, but because they felt uneasy. Some would, intense, some would be intensely interested and want to know what I had learned about the story. And many were very much afraid that if they told me what they knew, they would jeopardize their jobs or be sent to the company shrink. This, I was defined, was a dominant factor with everyone from Eastern. Their reactions and fears would later turn out to be major stumbling blocks. This was understandable even though I assured them that their identity would be protected. They would have no way of knowing that I would do that. Even with those who joked and laughed about the story, there was dead seriousness about it. Too many of their friends were convinced of its validity, either directly or indirectly. Tracking down the details in the new circumstances seemed to me to be an almost impossible research job. Eastern had approximately 5,000 flight attendants, and only a handful of them had direct experience. I knew no one at Eastern through whom I could get names and phone numbers, and, and company policy was strict about issuing them to even, anyone, even within the company. On the flight 401 that night, however, was a stewardess who was completely intrigued with the story. It turned out to be Emily Palmer, a flight attendant who had collected several stories in detail and said that she would get, get them together for me at a later date. She would also talk to some of her friends who had direct, who had direct experience to see if they would be willing to be interviewed. She was a tall, striking brunette with great enthusiasm and wit. She emphasized that Repo was certainly a good ghost, who had been continually pointing out possible malfunctions to the flight crews, and who was eager to help. She thought Eastern's attitude was ridiculous, especially with the implied menace of a psychiatric referral in the offing. This, she thought, was the main reason why the crews did not want to talk. I told Emily that if I decided to do the story, I would get in touch with her and take her and her husband to dinner on the next trip to Miami. She urged me to write the book. There were too many sane and respectable crew members involved for it to be a myth, including captains and first and second officers. Her enthusiasm was contagious, but I would have little time to think about the story on this trip. Such a story, excuse me, it's hot, I'm getting hot in here. Such a story would be a heady experience dealing with a transcendental world that I knew nothing about. 
although some of my previous books had reached out toward the edge reality. I was thinking that I preferred subjects like the newly dead, the new deadly virus and fever, or the harsh reality of we almost lost Detroit. In spite of the difficulty of the subject matter, they were within grasp. The facts were facts. There was nothing misty about them. Yet, they had plenty of inherent drama that made them interesting to write. I was happy about the award from the New York Academy of Sciences for Fever because it reflected that the book clearly got across what science could do do its best. The worst phase of science was the attitude that sometimes revealed a lack of social awareness, as in the the proliferation of nuclear power and fighting a potential catastrophe, or scientific prejudice that stubbornly refused to even consider exploring the little-known realm of the paranormal. Science knew much but understood only a fraction of a vast unknown geography, the human brain. The main tool that science used for its observations was little understood in itself. Its capacity to observe was limited by the by the finite circuitry, which in turn was trying to comprehend the infinite. The machinery of the universe reached out beyond the exquisite but limited tool that was trying to take it apart to examine it. The mind certainly went beyond the brain, but both met a paradox when reaching out toward the infinitely small and infinitely large. Whatever seemed indivisible could be divided again. Whatever could be multiplied could be multiplied again. With the brain and its limited circuitry as its only tool, science was like a radio trying to tune in to a television, television pictures. To go beyond its limitations, science would have to make a quantum transcendental leap, which would combine desirable objectivity with tolerance for imaginative and creative assumption. There was little doubt in my mind that the idea of a ghost or apparition was something that neither a scientist nor a journalist could ever pin down, except from the point of view of interesting and provocative evidence. Evidence is not proof, but it approaches proof if it is convincing and logical. If it approaches proof, it is not at all dissimilar to the, math- to the mathematician's tool in calculus, where the symbol X and O is often used to, to say as X approaches zero. I didn't know it was a zero, I'm sorry. I didn't take calculus. <laughs> the X never reaches zero, but it is a workable and convenient assumption. I was getting intrigued again about the Easter story as these thoughts went through my mind on the flight. Could the story be treated as a device of calculus, never reaching its goal, but approaching it in a provocative way? Could the idea of of a direct communication really work? I would have to think about it some more. I did. When I got to Miami, I went to my hotel and lined up my appointments at the University of Florida's Oceanographic Institution. Then I called a girl I knew who was a journalism student in Miami. She had, written me, she had written me previously about doing research for my projects. I might have had the Florida area. Her name was Rachel Fowle. Fowle. I was Fowle, not Fowle. And she had a bright and perceptive mind. She wasn't afraid of legwork. My first thought was that I could get her to check several time-consuming areas in the oceanographic research and survey. We had dinner together. As we talked, she brought up the fact that she was extremely interested in the psychic field and had done a considerable amount of study in it. I told her about the Eastern Airlines story, and as I did, I made a decision on the spot. I would assign her to explore the Eastern story, and I would do all the oceanographic research myself. If there seemed to be any evidence that that we could locate Eastern employees who would talk and gather data from the Federal Aviation Administration that might support the story, 
I would come back to Miami after, after the oceanographic script was completed to further dig into the strange story of the Eastern Ghost. We laid out a rough plan. I warned her about Eastern's employees being very reluctant to talk. Inside information would be very difficult to get. The fear of getting laid off was very real to them. I had very, I had very few suggestions to make because I had not given much attention to the story. My decision was even just tested out on impulse. We roughed out some key questions that needed to be answered. What happened to plane number 318? There were rumors that it had been sold to TWA or that its number had been changed. What were the names of those who reported seeing the apparitions? How could we get in touch with them? How could we learn of any flight deck crews who had experienced the phenomena? What clippings were in the newspaper's morgues? What information would the FAA have? What records, reports, and documentation would be available? It would probably be useless to go to Eastern Public Relations because we already knew what the company line would be, a group of hysterical employees who should visit the psychiatrist. However, we would try anyway. I had one lead from Sharon Henning, the Pan Am stewardess. She knew an Eastern flight attendant named Liz Gallagher. I called her later from the hotel room, but she was but she was able to confirm only that several of the girls she worked with on the L-1011s refused to work in the lower galley. She was pleasant, but knew of no direct leads. Emily Palmer was off on a trip and would not return until after I left. I had to leave the entire initial probing in Rachel's hands. My mind was too full of plankton and ocean of upwelling to give much thought. It was so much easier to research in a, su in a subject you could grab a hold of. Even though the man had never reached the bottom of the sea, it was much more tangible. I feared that I was throwing Rachel the curve. But she took it in good spirits and proved to have a knack of getting along with people. When we got together two days later, she had completed a lot of legwork and gathered a lot of information of a general nature. But practically nothing but secondhand reports from Eastern. There was plenty of technical material from the FAA about the crash itself to supplement what I had reviewed in, the, in Washington. Practically everyone she talked to knew about the stories of the apparitions, but they were reluctant to talk about them. It didn't seem very promising. There simply didn't seem to be enough to go on. There were a few clues, however, that could possibly lead to something. Rachel had a close friend, Betsy Wilkes, who previously had been a flight attendant for Eastern. Along with Rachel, I hope it's Rachel, not Rochelle, but we're going to just go with Rachel. Along with Rachel, she was an avid student of the psychic and would be glad to help if she knew anything. The problem was that we couldn't reach her, and my time was growing short on this trip. Also, Rachel had another friend, J.R. Warden, who, along with the other two, was active in, spirit, in the spiritual frontier movement. As such, all three had experienced some form of mediumship in greater or less degree. Warden also knew a lot of people who worked with Eastern and might be able to come up with some ideas. But none of this was at all concrete. I had to leave Miami the following morning to fly directly to Edmonton, Alberta, and route to the West Coast for more oceanographic research. The occasion in Edmonton was the taping of a Canadian television program to be syndicated nationally concerning my book, The Interrupted Journey, which had been published nearly eight years earlier. There was renewed interest in the subject with many new UFO reports over Canada. The program producer felt that the story of Betty and, and Barney and Betty Hill was a case that never been solved and was most in, and was most in, and was most interesting because of the high caliber of the hills and the psychiatrist involved. There was also interest because the case might possibly indicate contact with alien beings. Betty Hill was being flown out. 
Betty Hill was being flown out from New Hampshire, and Dr. J. Allen Hynek from Northwest University, where he was chairman of the astronomy department. Okay. I had not seen either for some time, and it would be good to say hello to them again. The trip from Miami to Edmonton is probably the most dreary flight you can take, but oddly enough, Northwest Orient had a direct flight with no change of plans. There were stops in Chicago and Minneapolis, however, to make it, however, to make it a long haul. However, I was glad for the chance to rest up and spend most of the first part of the flight sleeping. In Minneapolis, there was a change of cruise, and when we took off for the last leg to Edmonton, I suddenly remembered that I had forgot to do my usual checking to see what the Northwest crews knew about the Eastern phenomena. One cabin, attest- one cabin assistant, attendant, sorry, Elizabeth Mazzioni, knew about the Eastern apparitions and the Barney and Betty Hill story, which was extremely interesting to both. Elizabeth was a bright, attractive brunette with a tremendous amount of enthusiasm. She volunteered to do some further research among various Eastern rampages and flight attendants, whom she often ran into on her various trips. I was anxious for any material I could get and told her that I would be really that I would really appreciate it. She said I'd be surprised at how much material she could dig up, and that I shouldn't underestimate the power of a woman as far as detective work is concerned. We both laughed, and she went on about her job. Before the Canadian television tape the next day, Professor Heineck and I had lunch together and talked about the problems that came up that come up when you get in unexplored territory. Professor Heineck had been the official scientific consultant for the U.S. Air Force since the early days of UFO sightings. Through his work, he became the only scientist in the country who was in on every detail of the early Air Force probes into the subject. At first, he had been sure that there would be a logical explanation for the sightings and that they could easily be cataloged and explained. But as the evidence mounted over the years and the quality of the reports from military and commercial pilots, police, FAA supervisors, and other officials, who literally risked their jobs by reporting UFOs, was high, he began to wonder whether the casual write-off of the phenomenon was valid. The problem with the UFO phenomenon was that was the same as that concerning the paranormal field. The quality of the evidence was what counted. But because the field was so ephemeral, it attracted a lot of static at a high noise level, making it extremely difficult to separate the valid from the invalid. It could be done but it took a tremendous amount of time to study the evidence and weed out the bad from the good. I might be getting myself another story tougher than UFOs, I told Heineck. The problem I see with anything like this, he said, is the general assumption that we know everything that's possible to know and that everything beyond our, our present scientific knowledge is simply non-existent, or we would already know it. Fifty or a hundred years from now, scientists will, will be laughing at a lot of our theories just as we now laugh at some of the theories a century ago. This might be a key, I was thinking, in, the, in exploring anything so ephemeral as an apparition. In the new reawakening, the new reawakening, okay, the new reawakening so, so many people to the potential of the psychic world, the current yardsticks based on the past and present might have to be reexamined. There seemed to be so much new in the wind. The Barney and Betty Hill story, which we discussed at length at the TV taping that night in Canada, was far from answered, one way or another. There were residuals resulting from it that were puzzling. In her regression and her hypnosis, Betty Hill recalled that a large needle was pushed through her abdomen, and she was informed that this was a pregnancy test. No doctor in his right mind would use that sort of technique at at that time, in the early 60s. 
Nearly a decade later, a new test was announced in the medical journals for checking amniotic fluids during pregnancy. It used an identical technique, never used before. Betty Hill had also drawn a star map under hypnosis, which she recalled she had been shown by the humanoid being on the humanoid being on the UFO. Several years later, working from a model of this map, astronomers located a new constellation. In spite of the general scientific resistance, there was so much going on in the outer edges of science that it was hard to keep up with scientific studies using <laughs> oh my god. Electroencephalograph. I got it. First try. Techniques were being developed at the University of Washington to study transcendental meditation. Other universities were studying Curlian photography, a, met a method measuring energy emanating from the body. Biofeedback research was burgeoning. Jonas Salk was saying a new transformation is occurring in the circumstances of human life. Man's past performance should not be taken as the only basis for judging his future. Wilder Penfield, who pioneered a new new who, who pioneered a new techniques for the treatment of the epilepsy, reviewed his career in Princeton University Press book, The Mystery of the Mind. In it, he said that he started out to prove that the brain is responsible for the mind. As he studied thousands of patients experimenting you know, with electrical stimulation of the brain, he finally concluded that the mind was totally independent of the brain. The mind stands above the content of consciousness. At any moment, it is an independent entity. The mind directs and the brain ex executes. The brain is messenger to consciousness. If the mind was independent of entity, what happened at death? This remained the overriding question for everyone. This was why the L1011 incidents were more than a ghost story, more than a curiosity. They reflected a vast, little explored area in, in a realm that man yearned to know more about. It wasn't until June that I was able to get back to Miami. Meantime, Elizabeth Mazzoni, Manzoni, Manzioni, the Northwest cabinet tenant, was proving her theory on the capability of women detectives. She sent report after report gathered from Eastern Airlines personnel at nearly every airport where Northwest shared the rafts with Eastern. There were several, including LaGuardia and Kennedy. Many of her reports were, squall were scrawled on airsick bags, the most convenient form of stationery at the time. She explained that she might forget the details if she didn't get the facts down quickly. The bags had a tendency to bulge in the file, but they contained a lot of information, and they were instrumental in my deciding to continue on with the research. Now that the script for the oceanography, for the oceanography, the ocean, the ocean, gosh, you know, it's my mouth today. Yeah, I would just say the ocean documentary was completed. In Miami, Rachel had not been idle. Together with J.R. Warden, they had, this, they had scoured their eastern contacts and had come up with some very interesting information. First, through the Spiritual Frontiers group they belonged to, they had learned of an FAA executive based in Atlanta who was extremely interested in the L-1011 phenomena because it had been reported by flight crews who were capable and reliable. I had never visualized technical people as mediums, and this information was rather startling. What was even more startling was that J.R. had tracked down two Eastern pilots, Stan Chambers and Rich Craig, who were also mediums. They were based in New York, both members of Spiritual Frontier Group, and both had been on Miami layovers during the time I was away. Incredibly, J.R. told me that when the stories of the L-1011 apparitions grew to alarming proportions, the two captains and their wives, who were also mediums, had conducted what they called a soul rescue, 
mission to exercise the plans. They would be willing to talk to me, J.R. said, when I returned to New York. I had to stop J.R. at this point to try to absorb all this. How do you ever pick up all this information, I asked. Well, J.R. said, the Spiritual Frontiers Fellowship is a pretty tightly knit group. They're seriously interested in the psychic as, as part of religion. And on the whole, they're, they're, they're a literate and intelligent bunch. I'd say the members are, most, are mostly successful in business or in the professions. We were not as nut, we're not as nutty as you think. I laughed with them, and he continued. We're, free, we're frequently in touch with members in other parts of the country. We have a real common interest, and you can't talk to just anybody about it. It isn't something that's easy to dig. So what happens in Boston or Atlanta or New York gets heard about in Miami or anywhere else. You say the pilots are willing to talk with me? They said any time you get back to New York? And they weren't off flying. What about the FAA executive? Rachel tracked him down, JR said. I was talking to this friend of mine in the Spirited Frontier Group in Atlanta. She put me in touch with him, and I called him. He'd be glad to talk, he said. He's very interested. None of them, however, want their names used, JR said. They don't think people are ready to absorb the idea that pilots and technical men can be mediums, too. It's hard to visualize, I, I agreed. There's been too much mystery put around this idea, JR said. Mediums are just people who have developed their psychic awareness more than others. I studied JR and Rachel sitting across the hotel room from me. They were both mediums, and they couldn't act or look more normal. Rachel in jeans would blend into any college campus. JR in a cruise shirt and corduroys looked like any engineer executive on his day off. This was getting interesting, I thought. I would look forward to learning more about this. Anything else turn up, I asked? It's really tough to drag information out of the flight attendants, Rachel said. They're running scared. Some with the cockpit crews, I've talked to several of them. But the same story. They know all about the stories, but, they're e but they either don't want to talk because they might get fired, they say, or they know the stories only secondhand. I talked with a mechanic who told me he's observed a lot of interesting details you might want to look into, JR said. His name is Gary Lewis. He was working temporarily in Miami, but he's back in New York. He's another who doesn't want his name mentioned, but he'll talk with you. There seemed to be a good, there seemed to be good leads shaping up, thanks to JR and, Ra and, and Rachel. But it, seemed, but it wasn't going to be easy. There were endless blind alleys and false leads. Rachel went to the airport ramps in the stewardess's lounge at Miami International to make a cold turkey canvas, but came up with nothing very useful. Although everyone knew of the stories, there was the, there was a continued hesitancy to talk about them. I made an abortive pub-crawling canvas to see if I could pick up any scuttlebutt in and around the favorite haunts of, of Eastern crews in Miami Springs. In all of them, the rock music was so loud that the bartender could barely hear your order for a drink. It was useless. An important follow-up was Emily Palmer, the Eastern flight attendant I had on my trip to, on Flight 401 in March. She was in and out on trips so much that it was difficult to contact her. I finally reached her by phone, and we made the arrangement for her and her husband to have dinner with me when she returned from her next trip. By that time, she would have her notes on the Altair 11 incidents organized. She also told me about some of her friends who flew for Easter, each of whom had had some sort of experience with the phenomenon on the L-1011. They included Den Denise Woodruff and Jenny Packard, both flight attendants. She was sure they would talk to me, as well as a TWA pilot who had some information about the L-1011 that a TWA leased from Eastern during the season before the traffic was light. I was able to reach Jenny Packard by phone right away, 
I told her briefly about the story I was researching. Have you gone through Eastern Public Relations on this yet? Was the first question. I told her I hadn't yet done this, but didn't expect to get much information from them. I had been in public relations myself at one time and knew the arts and dodges employed in a situation like this. She was very hesitant to talk, but after I convinced Jenny that her name would not be used, she went on. Well, she said, I know of another flight attendant who went through the same experience as I did, and she ended up being sent to the Eastern Psychiatrist. I just don't want to put myself in that kind of position. I told her I didn't blame her. I'm afraid this is going to sound weird as hell, she said. I asked her not to worry. I had talked to the flight crews who felt the same way. Lord, she said, this is so strange. You've got to understand, I'm absolutely sane and normal. I told her that Emily Palmer had given me her name, but she was still reluctant to talk. I had to reassure her over and over that her identity would be kept confidential. Finally, she began talking, but the story involved both Denise Woodruff and, Woodruff and Doris Elliott, the stewardesses who had had the strange premonition about the ill-fated Flight 401. I felt that if I could talk to the three of them at the same time, I could better piece the story together. Jenny agreed, and I, I asked her to see if the three of them could have, a look, could have lunch with me at my hotel. She said she thought the others were in Miami and would call me back if they were available. Fortunately, they were, and the four of us met the next day. They were high-spirited and good-natured. They seemed to be a, there seemed to be a spirit of, 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 of camaraderie among them, a sense of defiance, and that they were absolutely confident of what they experienced, and and were damned if they cared whether anyone believed them or not. They were serious underneath, but took took it in a light good humor too. As they began talking, I put my Sony TC55 cassette tape get this cassette tape recorder. That's how early the story is, right? Cassette tape recorder on the table to begin piecing the story together. It was almost three months after the accident, Jenny told me, in March 1973, that she was assigned to an L-1011 flight out of New York to Fort Lauderdale, along with her close friend Denise Woodruff. It was plane number 318. Both of them liked to work the spacious L-1011, either up in the cabins or down the service galley, which were over two, which, where over 200 meals could be heated in the glass-doored stainless steel ovens that rim both sides. It was a cozy, quiet area. There was soft illumination coming from the lighting panels that spread across the entire ceiling. Some preferred to work down there because they could be alone with their thoughts as they loaded the carts full of trays on the two skinny elevator platforms and, and send them up to the cabin crew above for serving. The elevators carried either the food carts or two cramped stewardesses. There was less hassle and more privacy down there, away from the <clears throat> incessant demands of the passengers. The flight carrying Jenny and Denise was full, and the service demands were heavy. Denise squeezed into one of the tiny, tiny elevators and came down the lower ga galley to give her friend Jenny a hand in the galley. In the meantime, Jenny was on her way up to the passenger deck to see if she could help the girls up there. The two elevators passed each other. On the main deck, Jenny learned that Denise had gone down the galley to help her. It took only a couple of minutes for Jenny to get ready to return to the lower but you know, big galley. Unknown to her, Denise was coming up in the other, other elevator as Jenny went down. Jenny was a little surprised not to find Denise there. She thought nothing of it, however, except that she had a strong feeling that Denise was still down there. As she continued her work, the feeling grew. Denise was down there. She was sure. She could feel her presence. It was quite a pronounced feeling. She shrugged it off and continued loading the nails from the ovens. 
on the cards. The feeling of a presence in the galley intensified. Then Jenny was convinced she knew the reason. The niece was never above a healthy practical joke and must be hiding from her. There were several cabinets in the galley. Perhaps Denise was idiot enough to squeeze into one of them for a big surprise sort of thing. Jenny decided to wait her out. But now the feeling of the presence of someone else in the room grew until it became almost intolerable. Jenny knew someone was there in the galley with her, and it was an awkward, uncomfortable feeling. She was convinced that she was going to be tapped on her shoulder at any minute. She couldn't stop herself from glancing back over her shoulder to avoid it. She laughed at herself and then tried to shrug the whole thing off. It didn't work. Jenny finally gave up. She went over to the cabinets, opening the doors and shutting them again. Denise was nowhere to be seen. And as much as Jenny tried to dismiss it, the feeling of a definite presence was growing so strong that, that she found herself backing against the wall to avoid anyone who might be behind her. She felt silly and ridiculous. Now the feeling of the presence was overbearing. She had never felt anything like this before in her life. A genuine fear gripped her. She had to get to those elevators and get away from the closed and yelling. She, she was almost paralyzed with fear. She slid against the wall, against the row of ovens, toward the elevator. She couldn't believe the way she was acting. Jenny reached the elevators, pressed the button, and waited with her back up against the wall beside the elevators. It seemed to take an endless time for the elevator to arrive. She leaped into it, white and shaking. The ride-up seemed intermittent seemed to take forever. As the main At the main cabin, she pushed open the door and almost knocked over Minnie Darrow, another flight attendant. Ginny, she said, what on earth is the matter with you? I can't talk about it, Ginny said. She felt foolish and ashamed of herself. Come with me, Minnie told her. She followed Minnie to the back of the plane. Denise was there, and she too was visibly shaken. You're both more upset than I've ever seen you, Minnie said. She turned to Jenny. Did the same thing happen to you that happened to Denise? Jenny was beginning to get more command of herself. What happened to Denise? She asked. Denise blurted her story out. When she had gone down in the elevator to the lower galley bay, Jenny must have been going up, because no one was there when she arrived. She was immediately hit with a cold, very clammy feeling, something she had never felt before. She had waited a few moments for Jenny to, to return. The feeling grew worse and seemed to completely overpower her. She had done the same thing Ginny did later, running for the elevator. Reaching the main deck, she told Minnie Darrow about it and went to the back of the airplane to try to recover. She had no idea that Ginny was experiencing the identical feeling. They had asked Minnie not to say anything to anyone, about, to anyone about the incident, and she agreed. What puzzled both Ginny and Denise was that neither knew that the other was undergoing the strange, the strange encounter, yet both of their experiences were almost identical. They compared notes again. It was something that was inexplicable, and they forced themselves to put it out of their minds. It was only a few weeks after this that Doris Elliott was working the lower bay galley of Plane 318. It was the same plane on which Ginny and Denise had their experience, but Doris knew nothing about this. She had gotten over the shock of her premonition about Flight 401, but she would never forget it entirely. She still loved to work the L-1011s. She had no fear of them at all, nor did most of the crews, in spite of the crash. In fact, many other, like many others, she felt more confident about the plane than ever because of the changes in equipment. There were minor inconveniences, but these were the type of things that could happen on any airplane of any, of any airline. 
There were no major problems such as the one that the DC-10s or the 747s would be facing with their sealed doors, causing a tragedy. Her cargo door blew open. The floor collapsed and the DC-10 plummeted to the earth. The L-1011 doors were closed from the inside. Her cabin pressure kept them pressed against the frame. There were some problems that developed with three giant engines, but they were slowly overcome. In the interim, the huge craft could land safely with only one engine, even though it could not take off with one. The plane had the most advanced landing system in aviation. In spite of the fate of Flight 401, at times the passenger <clears throat> call buttons failed to work. The heating or air conditioning system might be inadequate, but the ovens might overheat. The baggage racks might not latch correctly, things of that nature. Although in the galley on plane 318, Doris Elliott suddenly realized that she was experiencing some of those minor kinks when the galley became uncomfortably cold. She kept on working, stacking the freshly heated passenger trays neatly in the service carts. The cold persisted, a damp, penetrating cold. This was strange because, if anything, the opening and closings of the ovens often made the galley warmer. She finally called the flight engineer down to see if he could correct the situation. When he arrived, he agreed that the temperature was extraordinarily cold, and went to the deck. And uh, I'm sorry, and went to check the thermometer reading. It read 90 degrees, without question. But the cold was still persisting. Although he was puzzled, he was sure that the situation could be corrected by the maintenance, by maintenance, and he would report this on this on the landing. In the meantime, the rest of the flight would not take too long, and Doris planned to go to the passenger deck as soon as she finished serving. Except for the distinct discomfort, neither the engineer nor Doris gave the incident for the thought. I studied the girls carefully as they pieced together the story. As they pieced the story together. There was no question of the intensity of the feeling about their experiences, that they believed them, and that they cooperated each other's stories without forcing the issue. We took a break from the story long enough to relax a little. In spite of their experiences, they had great affection for the 1011 and, and constantly bid for them. I'm an L1011 freak, then he said. I love them. I could probably have a lot better line on the 727, but I'm so happy with the 1011. The passengers like it, and they're in a better mood on it. They're so astounded by the size, and there's more for them to do. The others agreed. They began filling me in on the background of the appearances. From what they had learned from the other flight attendants, Second Officer Repo reappeared on the craft more frequently. Captain Loft had appeared too, once very vividly according to Ginny, but not as frequently as Repo. Emily Palmer can probably fill you in on a lot of these, Ginny said. She's kept a very complete record. I said I was going to see her soon. Denise said, Doris and I just missed a very dramatic incident with Captain Loft at the Newark airport. I was about to ask her to describe what happened when Jenny said, I haven't told you yet about my most incredible experience. Would you like to hear it? I told her I would, but I'd like to get some more background information first. I wanted to know how the incidents had affected them. They were unanimous about wanting to keep the experiences quiet as far as Easter was concerned. This referral to the company to shrink is no joke, Jenny said. It's the first step in getting laid off. Also, we could be just plain held up to ridicule. That's hard to take, too. We're, we're taking a big chance right now and trusting you not to identify us. I assured, I reassured them and then turned to Jenny to ask her to go on with her story and for the others to pick up the story where they came in. After their experiences, Jenny and Denise continued on their normal routine, Jenny said, flying mostly 1011s. According to their line bid assignments, according to line bid assignments, Eastern had some 5,000 flight attendants. Once a month, each bid for whatever trips seemed to be the most favorable and hoped to get it. 
Jenny had been with Easter for five years. Her trips would include Miami to Boston, to New York, to Tampa, and many other points on Eastern's vast labyrinth routes. Some attendants liked the commuter-style turnarounds, where they would fly to New York on Flight 26, arrive there in the early evening, then fly back on 401 or 477 to Florida and be home about midnight. Others didn't mind the extended flights, with layovers in New York or Boston or Philadelphia or elsewhere. There were also the choice trips to Mexico, San Juan, or other parts of the Caribbean. The work was hard in demanding, but it had its it had its compensations and free passes and reduced fares. The actual working days totaled only 15 or 16 per month. Despite the strange experience she had shared with Denise, Ginny had no fear of the 1011 yelling. In fact, she still preferred that duty to, to the necessity of constantly responding to individual passenger demands. She was a pert, attractive blonde with a strong sense of independence and a lively enthusiasm. Several weeks after her first experience with Denise, she was flying routinely on Flight 401 from New York to Miami. She had noted that the craft for the flight was three, number 318, the same one on which they had their experience before. Down in the galley, she was waiting by the elevator doors, ready to send up some more food carts to the flight attendants above. In peak periods, the elevators were often slow. They would not return down to the narrow shaft until the doors on the passenger deck were firmly closed and latched. Jenny was growing a little impatient. She pushed the button several times to summon the, the elevators. It waited. Then she leaned back against the starboard wall to plane and rested. To her left was the bulkhead that separated the galley from the section that carried the electrical equipment to, for the plane. It could be entered by a large, heavy bulkhead door with a small window the size of a porthole. Out of the corner of her eye, she became aware of a hazy cloud-like formation just in front of the bulkhead wall above the door. Puzzled, she turned and looked at it. The galley was brightly lighted, and she had no trouble in examining it in detail. It was not condensation or steam or smoke. She knew that. It seemed to be about the size of a grapefruit, but it was getting bigger. It was also pulsating in a strange way, that, and the shape was much more substantive. Why can't I talk tonight? And articulate than smoke. If it had been smoke or even condensation, she would have immediately notified the flight engineer. To make sure, she checked the nearby vent. There was no condensation anywhere near it. She pushed the elevator button again and then turned back to look. The cloud was now the size of a slightly elongated basketball, a few inches out from the wall, and was beginning to form into a thicker, much more solid shape. She was fascinated, transfixed by it. It was still growing larger. She pushed the elevator button harder and turned her face away. Perhaps, she said to herself, if I don't look at it, it might go away. She pushed the button again. The elevator still didn't come. She wanted to look and not look at the same time. She could still see the shape out of the corner of her eye. It was more pronounced than ever. She looked again. There was no question about it now. It was clearly forming into a face, half solid, half misty. She heard the elevator door above slam, and the lift began to come down. She pushed the button frantically even though it was unnecessary now. It seemed to be taking a long time to reach her. Just as the elevator reached lower galley level, she looked again. It was a complete clear face now. With dark hair, gray at the sides, and steel rim glasses now forming clearly on the three-dimensional image. There was no question it was a face, and no question that it was wearing glasses. They were now sharp and clear. 
This was the final touch. She had been able to try to rationalize the beginnings of the formation by explaining you know, to herself that it had to be condensation, even though she knew it wasn't. The steel-rimmed glasses and the clearly identifiable hair removed any uncertainty from her mind. The elevator arrived, and she jerked open the door and jumped into it. She was upset and shaking. At the passenger level, she went immediately to, to the biffy, the, you know, the airline turned for washroom, and tried to regain her composure. It was hard to get herself together. She would be afraid to tell anybody about this. It was too weird, too unbelievable. The first experience was difficult enough, but that was shared with Denise. Now she would be alone. She didn't even want to tell Denise. When she had seen the eyeglasses form on the already well-articulated face, she knew in her own mind that she was not creating the image of her own, on her own. She knew nothing about any other experiences and didn't have the comfort of that as, as a support for her own experience. She felt terribly alone and was determined not to tell anyone at all about what she had seen. Approximately one month later, Denise Woodruff and Doris Elliott arrived at Newark Airport on a routine L-1011 flight from Miami. They had a relatively short wait for their turnaround flight and went into the flight attendant lounge. Here they encountered a scene of considerable consternation. Half a dozen flight attendants were discussing an incident that had happened earlier that day, which, in view of the previous experiences of Denise and Doris, were startling. Assigned the network, the Newark flight they learned Plane 318 was undergoing its normal pre-flight check before the turnaround flight back to Miami. The second officer had completed his walk-around. The captain and first officer were in their seats in the cockpit, running through the endless list of details <clears throat> designed to make sure that nothing was overlooked that could affect the flight comfort or safety. In the cabins, the flight attendants were preparing the plane for boarding. The Marriott caterers had already finished loading the food and food and containers in the lower galley, and all was set up. In a few moments, the passengers were boarded, directed to their seats, and prepared themselves for takeoff. In the first-class section, Sis Patterson, the senior stewardess for the flight, was making her routine head count. She found that the count was off by one passenger, and went back over the seats to double-check. It didn't take long to find the discrepancy. There was an eastern captain in uniform in one of the seats, and obviously he would be he would be one who was deadheading back after bringing another plane to Newark. This was a very common thing, and at times the deadhead captains would ride in the jump seat after, after sitting in the first class for the first part of the trip. It was still necessary to confirm this, and Sis approached the captain with her list. Excuse me, captain, she said, but are you jump seat riding this trip? I don't have you on my list. The captain did not respond. He, stared, he just stared straight ahead. I beg your pardon, Captain, she repeated. I've got to check you off either as a jump seat or a first-class pass rider. Could you help me? The captain still would not respond. He continued to stare ahead, acknowledging the flight attendant by neither voice nor gesture. She was puzzled. Diana Boas, the flight supervisor, joined her. She was equally puzzled. The man seemed perfectly normal in all respects, yet he seemed as if he were in a daze. It worried both of them. They were somewhat uncertain as to what to do. Finally, Sis went forward to the flight deck and entered the door to the cockpit. Perhaps the flight captain would be able to get a response, but she couldn't. The flight captain was perplexed. He got it from his seat in the cockpit and came out to the first-class com compartment with Sis. There were about half a dozen regular passengers in the immediate vicinity of the, of, uh, of the deadhead captain, rather curious about what was going on. The flight captain approached the seat, anxious to get on with the flight. What puzzled him was, 
was that there was no record of another Eastern captain listed as a jump seat occupant, and apparently the man had no pass for the flight. With both the stewardess and flight supervisor <clears throat> beside him, the flight captain leaned down to address the other captain. Then he froze. My God, it's Bob Loft, he said. There was silence in the cabin. Then something happened that no one in the vicinity could explain. The captain in the first class seat simply wasn't there. He was there one moment and not there the next. The captain returned to, operation, to operations office in the, in the airport. There was a long delay. The plane was searched. The missing captain could not be found anywhere. Finally, plane number 318 lumbered down the runway for takeoff. Its passenger count now checked and balanced, but with a stunned and perplexed group of passengers and crew. Within hours, the story was spread across Eastern, and half a dozen other airlines, when Jenny Packard and Denise Woodruff heard the story. In one sense, they were greatly relieved. It verified their experiences and made them feel less lonely. It made them very curious. See how far we have going? Okay, you know what? It looks like... Just trying to figure this out. Okay. Well, I'm going to stop there. It's already going to be 8 o'clock. But uh, we'll continue from there. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. At least we're getting into the, the nuts and bolts on this ghost story. So uh, it only gets better from here. And uh, I want to thank you guys for coming today to listen. It was a long read, but uh, a fascinating book, like I said. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking about a world death cult that takes and captures and kills younger men uh, ages like you know, from ages 18 to, to 25. Um, I don't have any extra details on this, but William Ramsey is going to be my guest tomorrow. We'll be on at 6.30 p.m. Pacific time, our usual time for the show. I want to thank everybody for coming. And always remember, uh, if, you liked, if, if you liked even today or, or you like the show in general, share it with five people. If you didn't like the show, share it with five, five of your enemies because we're uh, totally equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And you can visit all our shows at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Also, uh, you see that ticker running at the bottom? This is the time when I do my PBS moment. I want to keep these shows coming to you and uh, keep these readings coming to you and keep the guests coming to you. So if you find it in your heart to uh, donate a little bit to us to keep that going, to pay for our internet fees and everything else, that would be great. At PayPal.me at California Haunts. Or if, you, if you're not comfortable with PayPal, there's always Venmo. And that you go into Venmo, log in, and just type in California Haunts. But I would really appreciate it so that we can keep these shows coming. Anyway, I want to thank you for coming today. And uh, I got a lot of exciting things coming up on our, on our YouTube channel that uh, we're going to be putting out there. And so keep an eye out for that. We're making just a few changes. You can tell I've got the new backdrop up. Still some issues to get it to line up right. But uh, the new backdrop came in yesterday, so I'm really excited about that. But I want to thank you all for coming today, and I will see you. Let me lean forward here. Uh, okay. I will, I will see you all tomorrow. So have a great evening, and uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend evening.